1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our own website. Sign up for SupChina's access, and you get all that and much more. With stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China... From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or by some estimates well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South studio in Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from his lovely wooded holler in Middle Tennessee is Jeremy Goldcorn, who serves as the Greater Nashville Campaign Chairman for Marianne Williamson, who is battling the dark psychic forces that have seized Trump's America. Jeremy is a Leo, and he enjoys mindfulness meditation, collecting Yadro porcelain figures, and decocting homeopathic remedies. If you are interested in contributing to the Williamson campaign, Jeremy is asking for <laughs> donations of chi in lieu of money. How's that going, man? How do, you, do you think your girl performed well in the debate last night?
2: Groovy. It's groovy, man. All right.
1: It was mellow. Cool, man. So, Jeremy, California, here we come. I am pleased to say we're going to be doing a whole series in the coming year, focusing on the Golden State and its relationship with China, talking to people involved in topics as diverse as climate change and the environment, entertainment, culture, you know, things like the film industry, as well as high technology, higher education, and that highest of all human undertakings, philanthropy.
2: A lot of... Hi, Stuff. That sounds great. Yeah, man. Yeah, I believe we're even going to do a couple of live shows there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. We're definitely going to do that. Uh, As it happens, many of these themes and topics we're going to be addressing are things that we're actually going to touch on at least a little bit in today's show. So you can think of this as a kind of overture to this California series we're going to be running. And who better to be our featured soloist for this overture than Matt Sheehan, the man behind the Fornia newsletter and the author of a book that should be out any day now, The Trans-Pacific Experiment. Uh, as Matt lays out in his book, major tectonic shifts are afoot, and uh, appropriately enough, California is the fault line where the plates rub up against one another. Uh, it's an excellent and highly readable book, and congrats, Matt, on the pending publication,
0: and, and welcome back to Seneca. Thanks very much, and for having me on here. Yeah, wonderful.
2: Matt, you tell an amusing story in the opening chapter about how you ended up focusing on this topic for what now the last six years. Yeah. Um, But it all started with a broken ankle and some visa issues. Uh, So how did you end up focusing on your home state and its relationship with China?
0: Sure thing. Yeah, it was uh, kind of a series of accidents that ended up turning out for the better for me. So I had first gone to China in 2008 for a summer working as like a camp counselor and I was just staying in Beijing and just blown away by the country and fascinated. So I decided I'd move back after I graduated college in 2010 spent a year teaching English in Xi'an in central China, and then out to Beijing. And by the time I got to Beijing, I, I knew my goal was to become a journalist, a foreign correspondent. I was really inspired by some folks like Peter Hessler, and I also felt that there was kind of something missing from some of the China coverage that I was reading normally. So you know, I was kind of working my butt off trying to put together some stories. And I'd given myself basically, I saved up some money while I was working a job. And I said, you've got 25,000 RMB and six months to turn all of this into a career as a journalist. And so I roamed around the country, I hitchhiked, I wrote some stories. But as I was getting to the end of it, I still hadn't attained my goal. I hadn't gotten a job as a full time journalist. So I was getting ready to just go into sort of any old china job like the working for the american chamber of commerce in dalian or doing real estate in wuhan or something like that when uh, a miracle happened i uh i was playing ultimate frisbee and i just completely mangled my ankle um it was like swollen up size of a cantaloupe oh, uh, i go to the nearest hospital and the the doctor spends about two seconds looking at the x-ray and declares it to be Mei char you know <laughs> just walk it off you'll be fine <laughs> So a couple of days later, I, I got on a flight. I had a scheduled trip back to the U.S. just to spend a couple of weeks there. And um, as I'm getting on the flight, the, you know, the, the Air Canada crew is saying, you know, if, if that ankle's broken, you, you can't get on this flight. You get a blood clot and die and all this stuff. And I was like, don't worry. The doctor said, char. So I landed back in California where I saw an American doctor. And he said, your ankle is broken in two places and you can't fly back for at least two months. Oh, shit. So I was you know, I was kind of at the the peak of my ambition to be a journalist. I was so excited about the country and the language and all the stories I'd been tracing. But now I was stranded back home. I was stranded in Palo Alto, where I grew up for middle school, high school. So I was, yeah, I was really bummed out. I, I thought that I was going to lose the thread of all this stuff I'd been building in China. And then When I started to look around, I just noticed that a lot of the China stories were kind of coming to me now. I'd always thought Beijing was the center of the action for all things China-related, but suddenly places like Palo Alto, Stanford, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, were all getting these really interesting sort of tentacles of interaction with China. So I I started by... uh, Going on a bus tour, a luxury bus tour for Chinese home buyers in Palo Alto. They were oh, buying a bunch of homes, yeah, buying a bunch of homes in my hometown. And uh, I went on this tour where they kind of, you know, do Mandarin language introduction to the city and and try to sell some homes to these folks um so that was kind of my first story in this china california nexus and uh eventually i I did make it back to china and uh through some lucky introductions and whatnot i got a job as a correspondent for the world post a partnership between the huffington post and the Berggruen institute um and i thought you know okay i'll start my journalism career here but then a visa problem the chinese government basically didn't want to give me a visa and they you know effectively sent me back to california for six months this time, I I had seen the early inklings of all these stories going between the places. And so I started following more of them. I followed uh, when BYD, the Chinese electric car company, set up shop in California and ran into some scandals. I went to report on that. Uh, I started meeting Chinese coders, engineers, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and reported on that. And when I finally did get my visa to go back to China, I sort of followed these stories back there and kept reporting them out. And that's Pretty much what I've been doing for the last five plus years is following the stories of these people and the companies and the ideas that I think are really ground zero for this new era in U.S.-China relations, where the two sides are meeting face-to-face in many contexts. And there's a lot of high hope for what that means, bringing the countries together But it also engenders like totally new frictions and tensions and uh, stuff that we're seeing play out right now in the trade war, the technology tensions and all that. Right. Well, you dive
1: right in with this book and you tackle what is, at least to me, one of the thorniest of all the issues that we confront, which is this huge influx in the last 10 years or so of Chinese students in the U.S., uh, it's a topic we've discussed before on this show, but uh, things have really heated up since we last took it on in any kind of serious way, so let's spend a little bit of time today on this because it's a, it's a pretty complex topic and it poses just a ton of challenges. Uh, so, But before we get into the serious stuff, uh, let's meet the de facto protagonist of this chapter for you, this guy named Tim Lin, uh, Lin I suppose, uh, the founder of the enormously popular College Daily. So who is Tim Lin? What is the College Daily, and why is it so significant? Uh, but most importantly, what was Tim Lin's first morning
0: at Miami University in Ohio like? Sure thing, yeah. So I'll start with that morning in uh, Miami University, Ohio. He uh, was 18 years old, had come from Dalian, had sort of just splashed down in middle America, And he went to sleep in his dorm room, and when he woke up the next morning, he sort of turned over and saw a naked woman slumped across the bed of his roommate, um... And what he said to me was, quote, I was 17 years old. I had never seen a real naked girl. I'd seen something like that, but on the computer or on TV. (laughs) And he says, he remembers thinking to himself, oh, so this is what it really is. (laughs) So, you know, this is kind of a, a maybe slightly more extreme version of something you see a lot when Chinese students come to the U.S. They... They are hit by some culture shock. The world like suddenly opens up dramatically compared to, you know, being a Chinese high schooler preparing endlessly for Gaokao. And um, yeah, so that was kind of his introduction to American culture. He would go on after he graduated to work in Silicon Valley a little bit, uh, volunteered in Africa, but eventually found sort of his calling in creating this uh, WeChat-based news portal called Beimei Liu Shui-sheng so North American Overseas Students Daily, basically a WeChat account dedicated to the sort of trials and tribulations of uh, students overseas, and it it became very popular. Within a couple of years, he had, I think, over 400,000 subscribers, and it became like a, a go-to, not just a news source, but also a, a place where these students would kind of learn about, uh, they do, you know, information articles on how to get an H-1B visa, what is the Super Bowl about, you know, how you use Tinder, uh, or even <laughs> how to like make sense of Donald Trump. So that, it kind of became this interesting resource. And I, I found his personal story and the story of his outlet to be a useful window into a lot of the questions surrounding Chinese students in the U.S. right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about College Daily now? Because it's more than a WeChat account.
0: Yeah. So he's always had ambitions to expand it in a bunch of different directions. And there's ambitions to make a platform for kind of college applications to go beyond just North America and U.S. students to do sort of online instructional video series. So it's become a lot more than just a WeChat account with time. It's grown a lot in popularity over time. It's also encountered uh, some controversy right now. I. Latest I've heard is that they're in trouble for doing some very lewd and honestly very tasteless content around um, the rape charge against the JD founder. So, kind of running into trouble with the government and huh. doing all kinds of stuff like that. So, running into trouble with the Chinese government. Yeah. So, they, they've run into trouble on this front a couple times when they uh, did a commemoration of June 4th a few years back. They ran a sort of a subtle ish commemoration. Um, of the Tiananmen Square massacre, they ran in trouble when they tried to do a, a live stream telecast of the U.S. presidential election, um, and so yeah, they've run into trouble with the government and also uh, some journalism folks I know, smart China journalism folks I know are are upset at Tim Lin for what is uh, deemed to be very tasteless coverage these days. But you know, he's he's a businessman now, and
2: he's trying to trying to rake in the the clicks. Yeah, he's got to compete with Byte Dance. Yeah. So to get back to the question of students, um, has the influx of Chinese students to the United States been especially pronounced in California compared to other states? Yeah. You hear a lot about um, Michigan, I think.
0: Illinois, Iowa, right? Yeah. Yeah,
2: Sorry, Illinois. Champaign, Illinois, Right. right? That's what I mean.
0: Yeah, so California... Like with all these categories I discuss, real estate, tech, immigrants, you know, the, the phenomenon is national, but the epicenter is here in California. So uh, at the most recent count, California hosted 60,000 Chinese students, which was more than 50% more than the second place uh, state, which was New York. Wow. So, California it has a major lead in this in, in large part because of the UC system. There is a lot of Chinese students in the UC system and there're also a lot that are trying to get into the most, you know, prestigious colleges out here, Stanford, uh, Berkeley, USC stuff like that. So, you've seen the the uptick across the country. A lot of Midwest schools have followed the same path in many ways due to budget constraints. Um, but California is, is kind of ground zero for it.
1: Well, let's dig into that a little bit with the budget constraints. Uh I mean- I mean that's obviously one of the big factors that prompted universities to start admitting and actively recruiting so many Chinese students. And this really all started after the 2008 great recession, right? After the financial crisis and the great recession. So what were the the reasons why universities felt like they had to court the Chinese students then so heavily after 2008?
0: Yeah. So this was kind of a a perfect confluence of push and pull factors. On the Chinese side there's the push. You have a lot of newly middle-class or newly wealthy Chinese families that are taking a look at the, you know, rigorous kind of brutal uh, education system that they grew up in, and they're saying, I don't want to put my kids through that. I want to send them abroad. I want them to, you know, have an international perspective, or I just want to show off to my friends, you know. It became almost like a a trophy property to have your kid overseas. So you had a great increase in Chinese families looking to send their kids overseas, predominantly to the U.S. Right. And then the pull factor comes from the U.S. universities themselves. And this was a a great sort of confluence of timing in that we've seen long term, like multi-decade, decreases in public support for our public universities, but it really fell off a cliff uh, right during the 2007-8-9 financial crisis era. So I know California lost about one-third of its public funding for schools. Uh, Other states like Iowa, Illinois saw very similar things. And so basically you're you're caught in this uh, bit of a trap if you're a university administrator. You can raise tuition, you can I guess shrink your student bodies or you can look for another source of money to basically plug that hole and a lot of them settled on Chinese students, uh, international students more broadly, out-of-state students included, but Chinese students were the biggest sort of ready and willing source of new enrollees who are willing to pay full tuition. While a lot of in-state folks obviously play, pay half or, or greatly reduced tuition at places like UC Berkeley, if you're coming from abo- abroad, you're paying for this basically at the cost of like a completely private school to the, the point where one international student if you just kind of do a crude calculation one international student could subsidize the tuition of two domestic students wow it doesn't always come out that cleanly and there's lots of issues about how that money is actually used but in a very rough general sense that's the that's the balance of dollars so by your lights is this ultimately
1: on us on on the US for our you know really pathetic levels of public funding to our universities or is it somehow on on China for well what, I guess I would have no idea for what for producing a society uh, whose wealth and ambition surpass the quality and capacity of its own uh, uh, higher educational resources
0: uh, who, whose fault is this yeah I mean I'm not gonna go with the word fault but when I think about the the causes of this the you know the limiting factor is or should be what kind of students universities admit do they keep up high standards like we've always had greater demand to enroll in u.s universities than uh than the supply of seats in them and so the real sort of fundamental change there comes from the u.s side and it's it's a it's a phenomenon I saw across a lot of the industries or areas I covered, um, especially looking at like Chinese investment uh, manufacturing investment in California and green technology investment in California right, right. Theres this sense that if we if we as a society, as an economy, as a government, are not willing to step up to the plate on a national or a state level, then local actors are going to do whatever they need to do or whatever they can to fill those holes. So, uh, you know, like in real estate, if we're unwilling to fund major, like large scale, affordable housing plan developments in big cities, then those developers or the cities themselves end up looking to Chinese money. And I think the same thing happened in universities across the board. They knew that they weren't going to be able to reverse the effects of the financial crisis or the long-term defunding of our public education. And so they looked around, and sort of the most promising source right there was China. Right, right.
2: So, Matt, you mentioned that the limiting factor should be the quality of the students. And, in fact, in the book, you write quite candidly about the unfortunate truth that some Chinese students and their parents uh, game the application process— there's a bunch of fraud and cheating, a whole industry of application essay writing, students being admitted who just don't have the English to match their uh, TOEFL uh, scores and, and so forth. Not that there isn't some scandalous behavior amongst American students. We've obviously just had this uh, a notorious case of the U.S. Uh, college admission scandal, uh, and I don't, uh, I don't know if any of them were Chinese. Oh, uh, one was. Um, so it's certainly not just a Chinese problem. Right. But how serious a problem is it with Chinese students in the United States?
0: Yeah, I think that for undergrad admissions at large state schools, schools where they don't have the resources to kind of like pour over every student's, uh, you know every extracurricular activity or interview them in person or something like that. That's where the problem is the most prominent, but really it's, it's throughout the system. It's even getting into schools like USC, uh, other places like that as well. And it's another one where there's an element of just literally criminal activity sometimes. And you just see Chinese parents basically willing to do anything or pay, you know, up to $40,000 to guarantee entrance at a school, But there's also there's also a little bit of a a cultural disconnect that some of these school, some of these education, quote unquote, consulting organizations are filling as well. And there are some legitimate ones that sort of fill that hole. Or when you present the U.S. application process to a Chinese parent, a Chinese family, it's it's totally baffling and bewildering. You know, when those parents got into school. Their entire education was focused around heading towards Gaokao. Your teachers will fully prepare you, and you just got to study your ass off. And then there's a score at the end, and you get in where you get in. But for a U.S. college application, you're talking about grades. You're talking about SAT 1, SAT 2, a TOEFL score, a personal statement, extracurricular activities that basically don't exist in Chinese schools, and just this idea of presenting a well-rounded, English-fluent student is something that's that's foreign to all the actors on the Chinese side. And that's not...
2: I love reading yeah. and listening to music. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I profiled a pair of twins uh, while I was over there, twin brothers, who one of them was applying to school in the US, and one of them was applying to school in China, and following how they encountered their processes differently was very kind of enlightening in this way. The the kid who was going to school in America, uh, or the brother, he was you know, in conversation, he was super engaging, super exciting, thoughtful guy. He loves Tang poetry. He loves New York fashion. He loves cult. You know, he just like, he mixes it all up in a way that I really think this kid would be an asset at a U.S. university. Uh But when I asked him, you know, what did you think about your personal statement? How did you come to think about that? And he said to me, quote, I thought maybe in a good personal statement, you'll just show off your strong will to the guy reading this. Like, you'll just say, quote, I focused on studying math for four years. <laughs> I was just like, that's brutal. That, that is brutal that even a really smart, creative kid, if not kind of set straight, will basically write an essay that makes him look like a robot to an American college counselor. And so he, he worked with an education consulting group, one of the more legitimate ones that just kind of helped him shape it. And uh, he ended up at the University of uh, Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we got him in. Uh, not so glad about the more like rampant, wide scale uh, fraudulent behavior, especially when it comes to tests and cheating. That's a major, major problem.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Another important issue to address is, of course, this very illiberal behavior that we're seeing on by some Chinese students. Uh, as well as coordination between Chinese students and Chinese consulates or other government representatives, I mean, we've seen stuff like the protests against the Dalai Lama at UC San Diego, and actually, just similar or even worse situations like what we just saw just in the last couple of days uh, in Queensland, Australia. I know not California, but you know, um, <coughs> also in New Zealand, actually. Yeah, in New Zealand, we've seen it too. Um, Anyway, it, in Auckland, yeah. What what is your sense, though, Matt, about how much of this is actually orchestrated or coordinated by Chinese authorities? How much is more or less spontaneous? You know, just expressions of of, of overzealous
0: patriotism or? Yeah, I think you definitely have both elements, like the reported. Uh, the reported incidents that look very coordinated have been uh, stuff like organizing groups of students to go welcome, uh, you know, Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He's, he's driving into Washington and they have students, you know, lining the streets, waving flags. Right. Um, and you have a lot of like confirmed incidents of that. Uh, what I looked into, I looked into the UCSD case specifically. I was down there to give a lecture and I just met with uh, some of the Chinese students down there, including one who was involved in orchestrating these protests, basically protesting that the Dalai Lama had been invited to give the commencement speech at UCSD, which is one of the most uh, heavily Chinese UCs. And the story that I got from talking to the young woman involved named Lisa Ho um, was that it was... There was a, a large spontaneous element, like that it was a spontaneous reaction of the students to say, wait, what do you mean you're inviting the Dalai Lama? But it wasn't so much that they actually had real knowledge of the Dalai Lama or they had a like a legitimate beef with him. She described it as this feeling that like the university doesn't know or care about the thoughts and feelings of its Chinese students. It basically, it seemed like a lot of the word a lot of students use to me is we're, quote, invisible on campuses. And, you know, this is at a time where they're watching their fellow American classmates lead all kinds of protests um, against speakers coming to campus on racial social justice issues. And a lot of those that I talked to said, you know, we, we feel kind of left out or we feel we feel like nobody cares about what we even think about things. So that's, you know, a, a charitable interpretation of of one specific incident. And I, I thought it was actually kind of interesting uh, that as Lisa was helping to organize this uh, protest first, you know, the organizers, they, they messaged the Chinese consulate to say they were going to do this. You know, huge mistake. It makes it look like it's some big coordinated action by the Chinese consulate in Los Angeles. The way she described it, at the very least, was that their leadership got in touch with the consulate to tell them they were doing this thing, but it was very bad publicity, at the very least. What I, you know, if there's anything that I liked about this incident that came good that came out of it, was it actually, uh, sort of encouraged Lisa herself to learn about the Dalai Lama for the first time. She said she, you know, had some vague sense that he's supposed to be this bad guy. She'd heard about him (laughs) during the 2008, uh, you know, Tibet incidents around the Olympics. And she said she actually ended up reading a lot about the Dalai Lama, reading, uh, you know, American takes when she was kind of creating posters for their protests. She said, you know, I I couldn't even use the Chinese sources. They're so biased. Um, But yeah, she read a more American take on him and she found came in, you know, to what to her feels like a very balanced view of that. I actually agree with a lot of what he says, um, but I think, you know, this idea that he's totally apolitical is wrong. And this was kind of her her first encounter with that stuff and her first opportunity to learn about this topic that had basically been hidden from her, um, most of her life in China. And so, you know, the students ended up organizing a protest. They engaged with some Americans and, uh, they found it, you know, the Americans kind of said like, you're brainwashed, like you don't know what you're talking about. She was frustrated by that, but kind of glad that they, that they did it, that they had some kind of a voice in this. And UCSD did not rescind the invitation to the Dalai Lama, right. which would have actually been very bad. So, you know, maybe that's a, Maybe that's a very on-the-ground and potentially charitable look at something that, on a macro scale, has many much more negative uh, you know, manifestations, like what you described in Australia and in New Zealand, and I certainly believe that those things are real. I also think that when you zoom in to the ground level and to the people involved, it oftentimes paints a different picture. You see that their motivations are more complex, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. Yeah, Um, yeah, But I I always want to bring it back to those people involved.
2: Yeah. Huh. Still. Still, still. Anyway, uh, Matt, you write about conversations with um, Chinese uh, Scholar and Student Association representatives who were quite blasé about the fact that they are reporting on the religious activities of other students, whether because of state concerns over conversions to Christianity or to the uh, so-called evil cult Falun Gong. Um, How do you get a sense of proportion here? How prevalent is this kind of snooping behavior? Yeah, so I
0: think at this point I've talked to the members or the heads of CSSAs at probably half a dozen schools, mostly here in California, but also in some other states in the Midwest. And yeah, getting that sense of proportion, like knowing that there are some very scary incidents uh, and like really terrible things going on, and also recognizing that that is a sort of a It's a specific manifestation. It does not necessarily dominate the lives of all these Chinese students or even dominate the activities of the CSSA. So getting an actual, uh, you know, survey-level sense of how that works, I don't have the ability to. If I had to give my sort of thumbnail sketch from what I've seen, like the normal operating procedures of a CSSA at a school and its relationship with the consulate is uh, probably once the, the head of the CSSA has a contact at the consulate, who's probably in the education department over there. They are in some WeChat groups, and they'll occasionally exchange messages, but they only really meet once a, either semester or once a year, when the consulate will invite various heads of the CSSA to come in for like a conversation, uh, you know, some kind of official dinner where they take a photo together. But around either politically sensitive times or... Politically, quote unquote, sensitive activities such as uh, religion, there is the much more nefarious kind of creeping influence with uh, the political activities. Uh, Speaking to some CSSA folks, they said, Yeah, when you know, the 19th Party Congress was going down, they wanted us to organize watch parties, Uh, (laughs) they wanted us to take pictures of the watch parties and send them to them so that the consulate could then send the pictures above saying, Look, we're organizing all this patriotic energy. And the heads of the CSSA had to write essays on what the spirit of the 19th Party Congress meant to them. Oh, Christ. You know, take that for whatever it is. And then the the worst manifestation of this that you cited, Jeremy, was talking to the head of one CSSA who— very, yeah, in a very blasé way, without thinking that this would mean anything, would appear nefarious or, or should be secretive to me, he said, oh, yeah, and, you know, sometimes uh, the, the consulate will will call me over and they'll say, you know, are, are any students kind of like uh, organizing religious groups? And, you know, they kind of want to keep tabs on that. And I was like, well, what, you know, what, what do you tell them? What do they do with that information? He says, oh, no, it's not a big deal. You know, it'll only be a problem if they're doing some of that Falun Gong huh. stuff. And... He, you know, just the way that he said this to me, it 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 really sunk in that this kid had been in America not just for for college, but also for some of high school, and in that five six years, had never really internalized the idea that spying on your friends' religious beliefs and activities in the United States, is, right. Either wrong, yeah. In the United States, is wrong, uh, is you know potentially illegal, is and is just uh, yeah immoral. And to me, of all the things that I that I saw from researching and talking to all these people, that one to right. me was the most depressing because it doesn't it doesn't even enter the consciousness of a of a student who's been here for that amount of time and has received a U.S. education that this is not right, okay. Right, right. I mean, this is an extreme example, of, of
1: course. I mean, but there's something that comes up repeatedly across your whole book. Uh, I, I could very well adopt a version of this as my own kind of mantra. I mean, you, you look at situations like that aren't as extreme, that are a little more ambiguous, where you have like a film festival at the University of San Francisco, for example, uh, uh, where there are these, you know, many things that you could call out. I mean, it is a CSSA event. Uh, there are Chinese officials present there. There's no mention at all about any of the sensitive topics, no mention of Xinjiang, no mention of Tibet, probably by design. Uh, There's kind of an aura of censorship to the whole thing, right? And yet, as you say, and yet here and in other places, that narrative doesn't get to the heart of what's happening here, you say. Uh, So how would you characterize what's at the heart of what's happening in situations like that?
0: Yeah. So I think with with all the topics in the book and, and broadly in my research on this, there's always at least sort of three levels to things. There's the individual personal level. How How are the people involved experiencing things? What are their motivations? What are they taking away from these interactions? And that's important. I think that we need to, in many cases, stay zoomed in on that For insight into the higher level issues, which happen at, say, with universities, we can take it at like the state level. What's happening at the state level such that we need to bring in so many non resident students to basically subsidize California universities? And then what's happening at the national level, which relates to both the CSSAs, it relates to questions about uh, spying on campuses, it relates to, you know, how do we think about foreign nationals in our STEM and engineering PhDs? Does it matter if they come from somewhere else? Does it matter if they intend to return to somewhere else? I'd say all these three levels have their own reality, and they're all right. intricately interwoven. With the the film festival that you were mentioning, that it really struck me because that's that's down at the personal level, which you know, from a, a personal interest and almost like on an emotional level, that's the one that I often connect with the most because I, I I like. People. I care about what happens to people in their lives. And at that at that film festival, I'd been invited because one of my uh, online videos had, <laughs> yeah. had been nominated for something. And the other the other students there was mostly Chinese students who made their own little films, and they were broadcasting it at this festival put on by a local CSSA at University of San Francisco. And like you said, you know, I uh, there was a member of the Chinese consulate there, the guy from the education department. He talked. Uh, it was put on by a CSSA. I have no doubt that if someone had submitted a movie about the protests in Hong Kong, they would that movie would not have shown there. So you have whether or not there was actual censorship, there is sort of an implicit limit on what can or will be said there.
1: But there was there was one about by a young gay man about yeah. his own you know dating life, which yeah. is you know. Is-
0: that was, that was the one that really struck me. He, he was sitting next to me, and uh, his name was Kafka. His English name, Kafka. <laughs> and it was a movie put together by a couple of guys, and it was about a very personal movie about what it's like to grow up closeted in China, come to the U.S., kind of start to express your sexuality, have your first real relationship. And, you know, it was, it was just a super personal movie, and in its own way, it was very much liberating, them and being here and experiencing all that was what allowed that to happen they when I asked them you know are you putting your movie up on Chinese sites or US sites he said oh we're, we're just going to put it up on US sites you know in China people would just kind of ridicule us and 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 shame us but being here, he felt that little bit of personal freedom to kind of express himself and to put that on screen and and it, and in that context, the movie festival that day was was a meaningful event for him. So while keeping in mind all of the state and national macro level issues, I still think that there is a very meaningful nugget of kind of personal eye-opening personal liberation that happens for a lot of Chinese students here. It's, it's something that I experienced myself when I went over to China. And so to me, that's really meaningful. And I, I still want to keep an eye on that.
2: And Matt, you're saying that sometimes the eye-opening happens in the context of a CSSA or even a embassy-organized event.
0: Hmm. Yeah, in, in this context, it did. I think a lot of times the CSSA stuff is kind of stilted and, and boring, but it doesn't mean something like this doesn't happen on occasion. And I I don't know how to fully integrate that policy-wise into every other consideration we have to have about spying and
2: influence and stuff like that. So, yeah, let's talk about the other considerations. That's the cutesy side of the CSSAs. But, I mean, there is spying. There is informing on other students. There is the problem of illiberal Chinese students not really understanding uh, free speech or... uh, the constraints of public behavior when they encounter something that they're not familiar with, such as the Dalai Lama or people advocating for Uyghurs or that kind of thing. Um, So how do we address this here in the United States and in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and the UK and perhaps even Germany, other countries that may have this problem? Is it the university administrator's Is it the government Uh, what is to be done and I guess what is to be done about a a few different things I mean on the one hand coordinated political influence campaigns would be one thing illiberal students behaving badly would be another thing and spying organized spying connected with embassies or other Chinese government organizations would be another thing what is to be done in Lennon's words. Yeah. Let's stick with the students for now. The others, I mean, that's a huge can of worms, but yeah, I, 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 I'm asking all of these things about students. Okay. I see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think there, it's a, it's a thing where you can, it's like a multifaceted problem and you need different actors to take on different parts of it. So uh, first is taking on the spying element of it. I think that, that sort of has to be in the hands of the FBI or counterintelligence folks in the US. We just can't expect universities to effectively, um, you know, uh, piece together what the intentions of a Chinese PhD in astrophysics are. It's, it, it's so counter to the university's ethos that I think that has to largely be in the hands of the FBI. <laughs> it's, they've been doing a lot more outreach to universities trying to basically raise awareness of these issues. And I think that's probably appropriate if done in the right way, but that I can't put that on kind of the universities themselves. I think the universities do have an obligation to make sure that it's very clear what uh, what the funding sources are for student groups. So the CSSAs are a student club on campus. And reporting uh, by people like Bethany and others has shown that, you know, they do receive, these student groups do receive a certain amount of money from the Chinese consulate. It's often maybe $500, $2,000 a semester, something like that. But I think a school-wide policy that says if you receive money from any government, including probably the u s government, that that needs to be in some way publicly disclosed, I think that that sounds like a very like straightforward kind of logical policy to make out of this um, so that 's kind of on the like school funding level, on the spying level, and then on the more maybe personal level around uh, like the bad behavior of you know so called nationalists who who want to confront others. That one, I don't know if we have such good mechanisms for getting involved in that, partly because of the the way that protest on campus has taken hmm. shape in the last five years or so. You know, we are we going to sort of get into every every one of these and adjudicate like it's OK to stop a speaker because they this uh, is Milo you know, Yiannopoulos are, or whatever. Yeah, like, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the levels and the texture of like U.S. campus politics right now is, is you know, even worlds away from where it was when I was there. And I think that I, I don't know that we have a good mechanism for saying like this kind of student protest is good. This kind of student protest is bad. This kind whatnot. If there is a funding mechanism and that's something that the universities can have a policy around, I think that that's a good, straightforward idea Um but yeah, the the individual actions from kind of zooming in and talking to these individual people, their motivations, their what they're getting out of it, what they're doing are kind of all over the map. And I think that that one has to kind of be left at a very granular. Yeah, I was level. talking to
1: Eric Fish, who of course is working on a book about Chinese students, uh, and we we were I, mean, I was surprised to find that most incoming freshman students, no matter where they're from, they don't get anything like a course in. Uh, sort of American civic culture, or, or, or you know, basically, hey, you know, liberal democracy 101, one. This is how you, this is how you do, and this is what you don't do uh, as a, a student on on this campus. I mean, I feel like at least they could have some kind of prophylactic course to explain to them what is off limits.
2: That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, maybe there's nothing you can do in terms of rules or regulations, but. One would think there is something you can do in terms of orientation, right? And I, I mean, I believe the U.S. embassy recently started handing out a leaflet about free speech with student visas. I mean, I I think that's probably a good idea.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't object so, so strenuously to anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's let's move on. That's yeah. a huge topic, uh, and uh, we we are <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about. So let's talk about another big piece of the book about Silicon Valley and about China's relationship with, with American technology. Uh, you title that chapter uh, about China and Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley's China Paradox. So Matt, what, what is at the heart of
0: this paradox? Yeah, the paradox is what I would say has sort of defined the relationship between the two for most of the last decade, say like 2008 to 2018. And the paradox there, the, the tension and the imbalance comes from the fact that The flows of people, money, and ideas between these two ecosystems, between the Silicon Valley ecosystem and the Chinese tech ecosystem, were constantly growing and really reaching all-time highs. You've got Chinese investors in Silicon Valley. You've got Silicon Valley companies taking stakes in Chinese companies. You've got uh, tons of engineers and entrepreneurs going back and forth between the places. Andrew Ng taking up the post at Baidu and other high-profile Silicon Valley folks getting involved over there, while tons of Chinese-born, U.S.-educated engineers are showing up in Silicon Valley. And on the level of ideas, the same thing. You know, companies like Facebook starting to realize, whoa, like there's something really important going on here with WeChat. And we need to learn from that and sort of almost like cribbing features from it in the same way that Chinese companies have long cribbed features or cribbed, you know, a lot about their apps from U.S. companies. So... Yeah, so you you have this incredible like dynamic flow between the two places. And this is what I first started to observe and encounter in twenty thirteen with my broken ankle and my visa problem. But when you zoom out and you look at the company level or the national level, the companies still can't get into each other's ecosystems. The internet itself is probably more divided today than it oh, ever yeah. has been in terms of national borders. And the tension between these two levels, or how these two levels held for so long, is the paradox that I describe in that chapter, charting this period, say 2008 to 2018. Right now, with the trade war and all the tensions, I see a lot of this as our attempt to quote-unquote resolve the paradox, kind of bring these things into balance, not through further integration, but by tearing apart many of those links. Just at pre- the preventing level, tearing integration, apart the yeah. the human yeah preventing integration in terms of people uh sealing off money from going between them and in many cases also looking to you know basically seal off the ideas uh in one way or another yeah how unfortunate
2: so uh, related to that matt where do you end up coming down on the age old question of whether or not silicon valley companies should try to engage with china even if it means that they must conform to censorship demands or other cruel and unusual requirements from the Chinese government. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so this one, I think, is another one where it really divides across eras. I think in the sort of 2005 to 2016 era, it was all about these information controls. It was, are you willing to limit the amount of information you give to Chinese users in exchange for access? Are you willing to do a censored Google search engine or a censored version of LinkedIn in the Chinese market? And there the dilemma, you know, is often very clear. Like, do you think that you're broadening the information horizons of Chinese users by bringing in Google, which, you know, is maybe offers better international, better English language search results than Baidu? Or do you think the really important thing here is by censoring, you are reinforcing their regime and legitimizing it by just offering an American product that conforms to it. On that divide, which at this point seems to have essentially faded away to a certain degree, the I often come down on the side of expanding information horizons, even if it does mean working within a system over there. they as a someone who lived there for a long time and really like my personal kind of life mission while I was over there was often just engaging with Chinese people, trying to expand their horizons in one way or another, teach them ultimate Frisbee, you know, get them drunk a few times, just teach them to like kick back, have fun. And there were in many ways limits on that kind of a thing. But I I just found so much meaning in engaging with Chinese people in that way. And expanding their world just a little bit, even if you know there are, there are limits, even if I know that I can't just sort of get in there and immediately start talking to them about Tiananmen or something like that, that that would lead to a rejection right, from right. them. But, so on the information horizons thing, I lean more in that direction, although I was never in a position to like actually make these decisions.
2: The ultimate Frisbee strategy. The ultimate
0: Frisbee strategy.
2: But you're saying that
1: this, the question has changed now. This is no longer mm-hmm. really the, the, the dilemma. What's the new dilemma?
0: So the new dilemma, it's gone from like, how much are you going to expand uh, the information that Chinese people see to how much are you going to help the government get information on its people? Um, Essentially participation in the uh, growing surveillance regime over there. And, you know, companies like uh, Facebook and Google and others have... I believe, eventually, finally sort of given up the ghost on just getting their products in there. And it's moved the real questions to questions like how does a company like NVIDIA, which produces GPUs that go into uh, facial recognition technology, how do we view NVIDIA supplying cameras to, or supplying chips to Vision or Huawei that eventually go into the surveillance regime that leads to things like what's happening in Xinjiang with massive you know, re-education camps? And I think that question is, is in many ways, has a much clearer answer that, that it's very hard for me to imagine uh, defending that kind of stuff on a moral level. Um, they clearly, these companies clearly have a lot of business incentives to continue to operate those type of partnerships, and I think probably many of them were very much caught off guard you know the the people who were making nvidia chips in 2012 probably did not think that they would be eventually contributing to a surveillance regime somewhere else but that the situation has changed you know with the with the arrival of artificial intelligence as it empowers a surveillance state that's a that's a relatively new phenomenon and i think that's the new tension in these departments and yeah yeah it's just uh it it doesn't have that same sort of you know, <laughs> hopefulness that expanding information... And to Rizons some extent,
2: the question may be academic, because uh, even if you want to operate in China, it's, I think, going to be more and more difficult for any information provider, at least. Um, but on another subject, the next section of your book, Matt, deals with Hollywood, the other gigantic and quintessentially Californian industry. Um, Here you introduce the reader to Janet Young, who I have to confess, both Kaiser and I are complete fanboys. Um, Oh, absolutely. And we can't say enough (laughs) uh, good good things about her because she's so smart and funny and uh, has done so much stuff. Um, She's been a guest on our show too. Um, She has been really a key player in connecting Hollywood and China's own film industries uh, as well as the markets actually selling the films. Can you tell us about Janet and those of our listeners who are keen to learn more about her, please do listen to our interview with her, which was about two years ago.
0: Yeah, uh, Janet's fantastic. I, I met her here in the Bay Area, I think back in 2016, and, and she was hugely helpful in just giving, like really building my A richer sense of the history of this relationship between Hollywood and China, because she was there really right at the beginning of it in many ways. She went over, she grew up here in the US, in New York City, a Chinese American, and she went over to China first to visit, and then in the late 70s, I believe, to work as a translator at a state owned publishing house, you know, publishing or translating these really like turgid, (laughs) dense. Uh, texts on probably what the the two whatever's the full and, modernizations you know, i think the four cardinal principles, four modernizations right. <laughs> yeah stuff like that um so that was her day job, and it, and it exposed her to a lot of interesting things. Um, but what really inspired her when she was over there was exposure to Chinese films. And these are like the very first films that are made after the Cultural Revolution, the first good ones. So you've got directors like uh Chen Kaige, uh, Zhang Yimou, films like Yellow Earth. And she described it to me as a really eye-opening experience as a Chinese-American, as an Asian-American. She said, you know, it's the first time that I saw someone like me, someone like us represented on screen in like a meaningful way, not as some, you know, sidekick or caricature or something like that, but really seeing strong and interesting Chinese stories told on screen just like literally that that did not exist in her world before that and it was it was really impactful. So she eventually started working when she came back to the US, started importing some of these early Chinese films to be shown in the US um and this is right in the age where, where art house Chinese cinema is just starting to get traction. She eventually sort of turned that role into helping some of the leading Hollywood studios try to get their early films in China. And this is, uh, you know, it's still very early in the game. So the Chinese, you know, Box office is minuscule. The industry is primitive. But they're starting to get a few movies like In the Heat of the Night, uh, Roman Holiday, maybe Spartacus. (laughs) And yeah, she eventually, she, she worked with Steven Spielberg on Empire of the Sun a massive production in Shanghai and that period I think that was 1988 that was a real kind of high point for the early China Hollywood relationship when you get Steven Spielberg there they're making The Last Emperor in Beijing you've got this kind of the the Hollywood magic the the imagination and creativity of California combined with the the just incredible scope and drama and palette of Chinese history and Chinese society and between Empire of the Sun and and the and Last the, Emperor, between Empire of the Sun and the Last Emperor, I think they had seventeen Academy Award nominations wow. that year for films made in China, and so you know Jan describes it as this period of kind of felt like limitless possibility. You know, we're finally going to bring these two worlds together, but of course, what happens next is actually Tiananmen, and following that, there's a whole period of cultural. Uh, Retraction and retrenchment, where the Chinese Communist Party suddenly thinks that these foreign movies and foreign culture are, you know, the, the flies that are poisoning their their nice society. So you, you have a period of retrenchment that goes on for much of the 90s until the Chinese box office starts to boom in the in the 2000s.
1: Yeah, yeah. You also actually talk quite a bit about the company Dalian Wanda. Uh, and its acquisition of AMC Theaters in the US. Uh, I remember there was a great quote that you had in there um, talking about what it was like to see films in China. It was like, uh, they hang a sheet on a line, people sit on
0: bricks and pay with eggs. <laughs> it's like- <laughs> yeah, that's that's Janet uh, quoting the, the Chinese like film bureau officials who are trying to lower expectations right, for Hollywood. Right, right. They're like, you know, that's go right. to the countryside, see how filmies, movies are made. You pay with an egg, you sit in a brick and you watch a movie on a, on a hanging sheet. <laughs> so Wang Jianling, the the
1: supremo of, of Wanda, uh, he decides to make this his big move into the U.S. entertainment market. So how does that go? He, he acquired AMC Theaters. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. So you know he rose. He was very much a product of the uh, reform era China. He was in the military. Then he got into real estate and and really made a killing off building these Wanda complexes that uh, you know just dominate uh, Chinese cities in many ways. But around 2010, 2012, he starts to try to make this pivot. And the pivot is allegedly moving from real estate into culture. And you know this very much coincides with uh, Hu Jintao calling for strengthening China's soft power. It, call, it coincides with a lot of the go global pushes. So in many ways, you can kind of see him reading the political tea leaves. And he, he wrote real estate when that was popular. And now, OK, we, we need to do this kind of culture thing. We need to tell China's story. So he, his first big move is buying uh, AMC theaters, you know, the giant theater chain here in the U.S. And at the time when he bought it for two point something billion dollars, was the largest ever purchased by a Chinese company overseas. And he uses that kind of as his foot in the door and then really makes his kind of coming out party where he, he makes the case for himself as the ambassador, China's ambassador to Hollywood, Hollywood's man in China when he invites all these A-list celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, Nicole Kidman to the opening of the Dalian Wanda movie metropolis or some other dramatic name in Qingdao. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, he, he's making the case that, Hey, like Hollywood, you, you're seeing what's happening. Box office growing by 40% every year. I'm your guy. You know, you come to China, you deal with me. And he's making the case to Chinese officials that, Hey, look, I got Leonardo DiCaprio the dude from Titanic is out here you know I've got pull in Hollywood I can help tell China's story to the world I can be that guy and you know he's kind of balancing the these interests while pushing forward just billion dollar developments around the country
2: Matt so you know when I first encountered you online before we met I think you were you had a blog called the optimist's guide to China yep Um, And you you started writing this book before the current uh, fever of China is a threat took hold uh, in the United States, a a much more optimistic time. Indeed, you arrived in China in 2008 when uh, (laughs) a lot of people who are now very depressed about China hadn't yet lost hope. Um, So over the course of your experience in China and researching and writing this book uh, things have really changed in the relationship between the United States and China Um, the sentiment here particularly and one thing that has been a discussion uh, in social media and elsewhere recently is how a lot of the younger China watchers in the United States uh, appear to be a lot more hawkish and negative on China than um, their elders so, I mean, how are you feeling now? Um, at the end of you know, your, the book is about to be published, and you started writing it when there was still a, a, a sense that you know maybe the United States and China would it would be the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and now you know we're really in the shit. we're wrestling in the in the. Shit. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, writing the book over this period of time kind of forced me to track very closely all of these industries and all of these transitions. And across the board, almost, whether it's real estate investment, Silicon Valley, Hollywood students um, or FDI, you've had a similar arc, which is it starts uh, really picks up around 10, 2010, 12 Uh, and there's this sense of, yeah, kind of like limitless possibility. What if China just starts building a lot of factories and reinvigorating American manufacturing? What if, you know, Silicon Valley and China can kind of merge and create uh, truly global tech companies? Same thing with Hollywood, truly global, beautifully cultural, you know, mishmash films. And in every one of these, they kind of had a steady rise, then you started to see the tensions and kind of the seams uh, in the relationship emerge. And then over the last two plus years, there's been a either a leveling off or a sort of a dramatic fall and a change in sentiments. And the book kind of charts each of those as they go on. And, you know, right now, a lot of these, a lot of the seeds of that kind of discontent were very much observable at the local level. You know, tensions between California students and Chinese students or California parents saying, you know, why, why are you auctioning off these seats at our universities to foreign students? Uh, tensions between uh, neighbors in places like Palo Alto where they say, why are, all, why are we letting all these Chinese people come in, buy homes, and leave them empty? Um, they're driving up prices and stuff like that. So you, you saw a lot of local tensions. And what's happened in the last year and a half two years has been really applying the national sort of cap to all of that and in many ways the national the federal government trying to sort of reassert its dominion over each of these industries but particularly technology and you know i think that in many ways that's like a healthy that can be a healthy rebalancing the idea that you just let companies like Google and Apple, like private companies with profit motives. The idea that you just let them run your technology foreign policy with no oversight is not very democratic. It's not it's not how things should be in a democratic country. And so the idea that the national government, that D.C. is going to kind of reassert itself over Silicon Valley, I think can be a healthy one we're right now in this period where i think there's a little bit of you know the pendulum is swinging too far there's overreach and thinking that every interaction mm. between the two ecosystems is a threat every chinese student is a spy every one of those it's you know it's almost like dc wasn't watching all these trends as they picked up speed and they just woke up one day to discover they're, you know 300,000 chinese students and there's all these interactions with silicon valley and hollywood and kind of panicked Whereas if you kind of watch these emerge over time, you see that there's a lot of nuance there. There are tensions, there's possibilities, there's ways we could finesse it. But, you know, it's going to be hard to strike that balance exactly right. So I see the pendulum swinging very dramatically in the other direction now, and, and sometimes in like very worrying ways and sometimes in healthy ways. Um, how am I personally feeling about all this? I think that the process of researching and writing the book forced me to many oftentimes like reconsider my own Gut level beliefs. You know, I, I love to see real, genuine interactions between Chinese and American people. And I kind of have a default assumption that when you bring people closer together, oh, we're going to foster more understanding between the two sides and it's going to be a good thing. But in many cases, I saw very much through my reporting on the ground that, that uh, sometimes it has the opposite effect. Or, you know, you think that uh, Chinese involvement with Silicon Valley startups is a, a good thing because, they you know, the Chinese side learns about American startup culture and American startups get some funding and it's all good. But there's other layers to that. There's, but then Grindr uh, sends
2: AIDS data to China and everybody's <laughs> right. pissed off. Right. Yeah. And
0: so... For me, in many ways, writing the book was kind of a very sobering experience in that way. Watching how all of these trends rise and fall has been, uh, it's, it's, it's taught me a lot and it's forced me to like uh, come to what I think or hope is a relatively multidimensional look at this stuff that's a little bit more realistic. Um, but yeah, you know, I know that there's a lot of anger, honestly, sometimes in in. China watchers who had very high hopes that you know China would become just like us, or anger from folks who have seen the, the reversion in places like Xinjiang and controls on speech, or just the feeling that wow, we you know, we got robbed by China. And well, we've seen this movie before, right? I mean this is the, the classic American thing of setting up ridiculous
1: expectations, having them dashed as they invariably will be, being ridiculously high to begin with, and then feeling completely just butthurt over it. Uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, I don't mean to be a little, but the, 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 it, it, we have seen this before. You know, I mean, I think it's like all relationships. There is that that initial ridiculous romantic phase where nothing the other side can do is wrong. And then the, the sharp edges are suddenly there in sharp relief. And it takes a while of, you have to have them together for a while before the sharp edges are ground down smooth. And, you know, at this juncture, we can either give up uh, and go our, our separate ways, which is, you know, ultimately extremely destructive. Or we can just sort of keep grinding at each other until the edges are are worn a little. And I don't I'm not ready to abandon it. And I I sense that you probably aren't either. Matt, you bookended your whole book with, with a a story on the one hand of a broken ankle leading to your whole China experience, your China Fornia experience. And um you know at the end you talk about the the very appropriate idiom Saiwong Sh Ma uh, I mean, it it applies pretty obviously, I think, to your own story. But maybe it it, it summarizes your attitudes toward the the China
0: California relationship as well. Am I reading too much into that? No, no. I to me to me this this idiom, this uh, eight-character Cheng Yu, or whatever you want to call it, was, it, it's, like, really come into me deeply as, a, as, like, a life philosophy and something for my own personal stuff, but also looking at the relationship. So for those who don't know this idiom, Sai Wang Shi Ma yin Fei Fu, is about, it's 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 a phrase that captures a story, and the story is this old frontiersman in, I think, Warring Kingdoms period, and he lives on the border with maybe the Mongols, and He goes through this series of events that lead everyone to think, oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is great. You know, first, uh, a couple of horses come into town and, uh, or one horse comes into his farm and, and is adopted by him. Everyone says, it's great. He says, well, how do I know this isn't like a curse on my family? Everyone's like, you're crazy. Horse runs away. Everyone says, oh, this is tragic. You know, how do we know? And he says, no, how do we know that this isn't a blessing? Horse comes back with another horse. It's a blessing. Eventually his son riding the horse. A whole herd of horses. Yeah, a whole yeah. herd of horses. Eventually his son uh, is out riding that horse one day and breaks his leg and once again everyone says this is a tragedy but the next year when the mongols are coming and all the young men are conscripted into service uh, he's got a broken leg and can't fight while all the other young people in the village are go off to war and die so you know (laughs) oftentimes when translated into english people say oh it's like a silver lining every cloud has a silver lining or something like that but it's much more I think of it much more as kind of like a philosophic stance relative to to this stuff and just recognizing that we really, really don't know what the outcome of any of these actions are going to be. And we are often fooling ourselves if we think we do. We still have to, you know, use our best judgment to move forward. But the idea that, uh, you know, we knew that Chinese students were going to have this impact was was a bit of like foolish dogmatism something that even I participate in a lot of people do and I take the same at adi- you know I saw I saw this when I was doing my own thing when I broke my ankle I thought this is terrible then I got a job I thought this is wonderful then I don't have a visa oh this is terrible and eventually i met uh along the way I got together with my girlfriend Steph and uh you know it's been a beautiful story in that department so <laughs> so shout outs to Steph Excellent. um there, there are, you know, there's a million more great things in this
1: book. Uh, I, I hi- highly recommend it. everyone, you know, to get it as it comes out, uh, including the story of the Lancaster, California, uh, Mayor Rex Paris, who and his is romance with BYD, the, the electric car company.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, really great stuff. <laughs> Wild. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's too bad we don't have time to talk about all of it, but we do want to leave something for the reader. Matt, man, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, we look forward to working with you on our little California episode extravaganza in coming months.
0: It sounds great.
1: Yeah, so let's move on to recommendations. But first, let me remind listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Take a moment to subscribe to SupChina Access and start getting the daily newsletter delivered right to your inbox. Membership gets you in. An- early version of this podcast, usually on Monday evenings, U.S. East Coast time, instead of on Thursdays, Uh, plus discounts to our conferences, free admission to our live shows, and of course a berth aboard our Slack channel where you can talk to our editors, myself included, and uh, take part in our chats with guests, and we hope to have Matt on to talk about his book once it's out. So do sign up, show your support. Recommendations, man, Jeremy. Start us off. What do you got?
2: Um, okay, so uh, talking about Janet Young, just uh, and kind of Zhang Yimou made me a little nostalgic for my two, I think, favorite Chinese films are both Zhang Yimou films, and the one is To Live, Huo uh, and the other is Keep Cool, Yo Hua Haha Shuo, that are just very darkly funny, wonderful films that encapsulate for me, a kind of quintessentially northern Chinese sense of humor and attitude to all the f-ing crap life throws at you. Uh, so those two films. <laughs> oh, man, you're going to make me beep a lot in this episode, dude.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. No, those are great. Those are great films. Uh, I especially love Huo It's
0: just what a what a great film. Okay. Matt, what do you have for us, man? Uh, yeah. First, I'll second the You uh, Hua Ha Ha Shua recommendation. I think Jeremy specifically recommended that movie a few years back and I watched it and it's hilarious. I love it. For my personal recommendation, I, you know, a lot of this work in China, California, but then specifically China, Silicon Valley, led me into what I do now, which is predominantly work on the uh, researching the artificial intelligence relationship between the two countries. And the pitch that I want to make here and I'm trying to make elsewhere is I really hope that more people, especially maybe young, ambitious people who really want to learn, hope more of them will engage with these questions of trying to seriously look at uh, the capabilities and the all the ethical dilemmas that come with bringing artificial intelligence into the U.S.-China relationship. I think it's a hugely important field and currently uh, it has some really smart people, a small group of really smart people working on it, but we need way, way more people. And uh, I think it can be intimidating from the outside to look in and say, you're going to become an expert in AI policy, but trust me, it's, uh, it's not nearly as intimidating as it looks. And I really, I just want to put the word out to any young listeners who are looking for kind of their way to get into the US-China world. I think it's a great one. I think it's really important. And I hope uh, some of your listeners will join in the task. Yeah, you can start by reading uh, Jeff Ding's
1: newsletter. Yeah, I was
2: just going to say China AI, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's a. um, And you guys run that on Macro Polo, right? So we did a project with Jeff also titled China AI, but where we basically broke down the different kind of building blocks of the Chinese AI ecosystem and came up with uh, digital visual interactives for each one. So, you know, a digital interactive to sort of explain how the data ecosystem works, how talent flows work, how the government plan works. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a a visual digital representation of a lot of research that I and uh, Joy Dantong Ma and Jeff have done. So uh, I'll make that a a subsidiary recommendation, China AI on Macro Polo. Excellent, excellent. So I want to emphatically
1: recommend a book called Europe A History by Norman Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S. It's a real doorstop of a book, but it is just astonishing in its scope. Uh, It's been the book I've been reading all summer long so far. Uh, I'm not even halfway done with it yet. I haven't even gotten to the French Revolution. But uh, I shouldn't um, mislead here because it's not some old-school chronological recounting. But it it actually reads like like a long, long essay uh, with these kind of amazing and very amusing capsules, these little mini essays, kind of like text boxes in a longer magazine feature uh, that address, you know, big, familiar topics and little obscure, quirky characters and various marginalia. Uh, He has his own definite sort of pet topics, especially where Poland is concerned, Um, Poland and the historical kingdom of Poland, Lithuania. Uh, But it's just a great corrective to histories that have really tended to emphasize only Western European history. Uh, So it goes really deep on Eastern European history. Uh, And it's shot through with this just delightful, sly humor Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. I mean, it's an enormous undertaking. It's a huge, huge book, but, uh, highly, highly recommended. So Matt, man, uh, thanks once again. Thanks for joining and, uh, man, it was a real pleasure. I'll I'll look forward to to seeing you again soon.
0: Thanks to both of you. And I mean, a lot of what went into the book has emerged out of like long-term conversations with both of you on all of these topics. And so, you know, thanks to you and shouts to the Seneca archive where I got a lot of material from as well. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Jeremy, man, a pleasure as always.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kaiser. Thanks, Matt.
0: Yeah,
1: we'll talk again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, Our two shows focused on women, New Voices, and Ta for Ta, and the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.